welcome to the conversation. I'm your host, Anna Kasparian, and joining us today is Morgan Harper, who is a congressional candidate in Ohio's third district. She also helped us host an episode of The Young Turks fairly recently, a few months ago. Morgan, it's wonderful to have you back on the show. Thanks so much for having me. Of course, my pleasure. Just want to let our audience know, I think it's important to be open and honest with everyone. I'm a supporter of your candidate and I actually did donate money to your candidate. So full disclosure, I want everyone to know that. But I do think it's important to kind of catch up with you and see how your campaign's going. So fill us in, how's everything going? Things are going really well. I mean, we're actually entering the home stretch here. We have days left in the campaign. And as you know, it's all grassroots. We're not taking any corporate PAC money. So really just trying to rally the resources to make sure that we can build out and execute our ground game and get to as many people in the third district as we possibly can. Yeah, so you're doing a lot of canvassing. You're doing a lot of the hard work that corporate candidates don't have to do because they have the backing of the DNC. For instance, the incumbent that you're running against had about $1.3 million as of July. And I'm guessing that that amount has increased considerably since then. So since you're not taking corporate PAC money, what is your strategy to compete fundraising wise? Well, the strategy is is people, right? So, I mean, we were actually outraised my opponent by almost $100,000 in the last quarter. And wow. that was just through over 2,500 individuals from across the country, many of whom are, you know, part of the TYT network that are willing to back candidates that know that if we're going to get Washington to prioritize us, to get back in the business of actually having the federal government invest in us, invest in our communities. We have to have politicians that are free of corporate money. And so that's been a tenant of this campaign since day one. It will be with us until March 17th, 2020, when we win. And that's how we get the word out. And then, you know, in addition to that, just being able to talk to people and allow people to become their own surrogates of the campaign and spread the word that we can do this. This is a movement, but we've all got to organize together and make it happen. I, lo- I love organize. Um, so has Joyce Beatty, who is the incumbent in Ohio's third district, um, gone after you in any way? Because one thing that I have noticed, especially when it comes to progressive candidates who are challenging Democrats in primaries, The response from the establishment is pretty brutal, it's pretty vicious, and the attacks get personal. I'm curious if you've had to deal with any of that. Yeah, I mean, we we are up against a machine. And so, you know, when I first launched, I heard all sorts of things that I wouldn't be able to raise any money, that no one would, would listen or care about this. I had people calling my old employer, you know, threatening me that way when they couldn't get there, you know, trying to convince people locally that I'm not really from here, that I'm just making up my story, all of this stuff. And, you know, these are tactics of people who are her scared because they know that if you activate the populace and real people to actually care about politics, well, the machine will start to crumble. And that's exactly what we are going to make happen on March 17th, 2020. And, you know, it's, it's unfortunate that this is where the the party and politics has gotten to, but we can redirect this, and that's what we have to do through grassroots campaigns. So let's talk a little bit about your issues. I know that you discussed them with Cenk Uger when you were on last time, but I do want to kind of 
flesh out uh, your policy proposals when it comes to racial justice and housing. Let's start mm -hmm. with housing uh, because you raised an important point about how the unemployment rate in Ohio, particularly the district you're running in, is at a, a, a historic low. So uh, mm -hmm. most people have jobs, but the homelessness has actually uh, skyrocketed. So what's going on behind that and what is your proposal to solve it? Well, first, when we hear a statistic like the lowest, you know, historic low unemployment rates, we really have to unpack that. It's like unemployment for who and what does that employment look like, the quality of the employment. So even if the overall statistic is at, you know, 4% or whatever, we have certain neighborhoods where the, the rate is actually three or four times that number. And that is including people who, even if they are, you know, have a part time job or something or employment that's paying minimum wage, it's not enough to cover expenses. Um, you need to be making almost 18 dollars an hour here in Franklin County to afford a two bedroom apartment. So if your minimum wage is getting you to like $9 an hour, that's not even covering your housing, let alone food, utilities, gas to get to that minimum wage job. And that's where you start to see this dynamic of people who are working, uh, who are not able to actually afford rents. I actually just met someone before this interview that was like, I can't believe that people are expecting me on a minimum wage job to afford $1,000 a month for an apartment. This is crazy, right? And so, mm -hmm. you know, the housing policies that I'm pushing are an acknowledgement of those realities behind a booming economy, like some would say we have here in Franklin County, that's not hitting everyone. This economy is not working for everyone. So we have to be building more housing that is going to address the needs of people at all levels of income and also do something to stabilize rents. Because right now we have a situation where, and we've had it for a while, where, you know, a landlord property owner can increase rents as much as they want with no repercussions. So you can take someone that is paying $500 an hour and tell them, oh, next year, that's going to be $1,500 $1, a month um, instead of $500 a month, excuse me. And that's not fair. It makes it impossible to predict your expenses. You can't, the wages are not keeping up with these housing costs. And we have people that are becoming homeless. And yeah. the homeless system also is at its brink. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that a Los Angeles is a perfect example of that. And it's frustrating when the solutions that are proposed are usually by politicians who have taken massive donations from developers who aren't really interested in building affordable housing. They're interested in getting contracts by the city or by the state to build housing that usually, you know, is unaffordable for most people, luxury apartments, luxury condos. And so you do see a need to increase the inventory of housing in the district. But since you're not taking corporate PAC money and you're not really corrupted by these donors, you're definitely more trustworthy when you put these proposals out there. Can you talk a little bit about how you would go about increasing the inventory of housing? Well, so right now, a lot of the tools at the federal level, exactly like you're saying, depend on developers to decide that it's profitable to build housing, like, for example, the low income housing tax credit. And as long as that's the system, well, developers will build housing exactly when it they, makes money for them to do so. It's not going to be profitable to build housing for those that you know, either are not earning income or are earning, you know, low incomes through minimum wage jobs. And so that's where we have to get the federal government back to building housing, which it used to do. Mm -hmm. And this doesn't have to be a replication of just building projects, for example, it could be mixed income housing that's being built. But we have to acknowledge that these market-based solutions have failed. How do we know it's failed? Because of rising homelessness rates. Mm -hmm. It's not addressing the reality that everyone in this country, in the third district, deserves a home and the existing federal toolkit and the efforts at the local level are not getting us there. 
So let's talk a little bit about your racial justice proposals. Because while reading through what you would want to accomplish as a congresswoman, I noticed that you mentioned reparations. And so mm -hmm. reparations can be accomplished in different ways. I'm curious what the details are for your proposal. Yeah, so I call it systemic reparations because oftentimes when you say reparations, a common you know refrain will be, well, slavery was a long time ago, or I didn't own slaves, so I don't have any responsibility in dealing with this. And systemic reparations embedded in that is an acknowledgement that this is it's systemic policy that got us to the place of the racial wealth gap where you have you know over $100,000 is the average wealth for a white family in this country and $9,000 is the average wealth for a black family. And by the way, it's projected to go to zero by 2053 for the average black family. Zero net wealth after over 400 years in this country. And so we have to see as a, as a society that this was through federal policy for the most part, the denial of home ownership opportunities for black people in this country well into the 21st century and continuing on to some degree. And so you know, that's where one, just historically, we have to get on the same page. But I'm offering systemic reparations as an invitation to think boldly about what would remedy this and close the racial wealth gap. That could look like waiving property taxes for homeowners, black homeowners and formerly redlined communities. That could look like you know, available additional available capital resources for starting your own business. That could look like, you know, baby bonds is an idea that's been thrown out there and, you know, having a higher baby bond level, you know, certain level of capital that would increase and accumulate over the course of a lifetime for a young black child. And so, you know, there's all sorts of ways that we could remedy it, but we have to stop spinning our wheels with studying a problem that has been clearly documented and just get to the work of deciding how we find a solution. Yeah, I agree with you. You know, even though Kamala Harris wasn't my preferred Democratic candidate, I did find her proposal for black home ownership super interesting. And I would like to see something like that, not just studied. I wanna see a case study for it. I want someone to implement it and see how much it actually helps communities out. Because yeah, this the systemic racism is a huge problem. And I think when you have candidates who try to simplify it as, oh, we're gonna throw money at a situation, it doesn't really help. I think creating a system that, that's more equitable for disadvantaged groups makes a lot of sense. And so I love the way that you're approaching this. So final thing that I wanted to talk to you about is the jobs guarantee part of your platform. Mm -hmm. So how would you approach that? Yeah, so jobs guarantee, I mean, that's one of the things I love about the Green New Deal and why it's also been part of the platform since day one is we have to address the climate crisis. But in that, we have a huge opportunity to create jobs for people, higher paying living wage jobs that will be in the clean energy in other green initiatives that are gonna make sure that people also meet their basic needs. And these are jobs that would be available to anyone who is looking for one. Uh, you know, again, it's interesting. I was just talking to someone about that. And, you know, their concern was, oh, you know, really interested in the jobs guarantee. It's actually the same person that was complaining about how high the rent is, and even though working can't afford rent here in the third district. And it's like, okay, when jobs guarantee, is that gonna be available to me, even though I have a felony on my record? And that's one thing I hear about a lot in the third district is making sure that a lot of the programs we're talking about that returning citizens are going to also you know have the opportunity to take advantage of these programs that when we talk about you know big federal programs they often have been you know excluding you know, communities of color and mm -hmm. we have in the green new deal a clear statement that no this type of program is also going to be available and prioritize availability to communities of color. We have to have priority for returning citizens, people who have already paid their time and now are looking to build a stable life in our community. And so uh, 
again, it's just let's just get it done, right? We mm-hmm. we know what's gonna what's gonna work to make sure that people have stable lives. We need to have more and more people in Congress that are there, free of the corporate money, and just in this spirit of accomplishing things and getting it done. I love it. Morgan Harper, you're a wonderful candidate and I really appreciate you taking the time to talk about your policy proposals. If you wanna learn more about Morgan, you can go to morganharper.org and you can also donate to her. And again, she's not accepting money from corporate PACs. Go to justicedemocrats.com slash Morgan. And you can also volunteer by going to morganharper.org slash volunteer. Thank you again, Morgan, I really appreciate it. Thank you, end of quarter, donate to us. Please, (laughs) more power to you. Thank you so much. All right, have a good one. All right, uh, we're gonna take a short break and when we come back, we will have another wonderful guest uh, 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 who's running for California's uh, assembly. So we'll be right back. Welcome to the conversation. Joining us now is Natasha Gupta. Natasha Gupta is running for as a candidate for California's assembly in the 25th district. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi, thank you for having me. So just reading through your platform and your policies and what inspires you, I find you to be such a fascinating candidate, especially as a child of immigrants, someone who didn't really feel like had a lot of representation in the political world. You were inspired by Obama's campaign when you were volunteering. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure, so first of all, thank you very much for having me. District 25 is such a diverse district that covers Fremont, Newark, Milpitas, San Jose, and Santa Clara. And I think what you're getting at there being a child of immigrants and as you know, as my experience on the Obama campaign kind of showed me is that just like this district, I believe that we are such an amalgamation of so many different kinds of stories that all share a common goal, that we all wanna see a district that is more equitable and equal for all, that we see right now rising income inequality in California that really is capitalized by this district, which is the heart of Silicon Valley. In terms of what I was inspired by in Obama's campaign and what has propelled me forward in this race is that A lot of people right now, especially in the absence of a lot of compassion and empathy that we see in our dialogue are looking frankly for once again, that message of hope. And frankly, the message to believe in a bigger California dream for all of us. That doesn't just resolve the existing crises that we have with homelessness, with with, uh, the cost of education, with the cost of living and and frankly, the ability to dream of a better life, uh, but the ability to dream even bigger than that. And we see for so many families across District 25 that the basic struggle to even keep up with rent, the basic struggle to even be able to conceive of sending your kids to college debt free is something that has choked that dream for so many people. And why we need to channel that in not just running a campaign that is against something of of, of, uh, the rising income inequality that we see, but running a campaign that is for something. Mm-hmm. So let's talk a little bit about what politics in California is like. Because as a Californian, I, I was born and raised here, I've lived here my entire life. While there are a lot of Democrats in office in, in California, the fact of the matter is many of them are corrupt. Many of them have real estate developers in their pocket. And so if you win, you're gonna have to deal with a lot of that. And so how do you propose to kind of overcome 
the corrupt lawmakers in this state in order to accomplish some of your policies? You're absolutely right, Anna. And the truth of the matter is that running as an outsider myself and as someone who my day job is working in technology, I'm not from politics. And I have seen how the system in and of itself, even to run for office, is set up such that outsiders are not encouraged to run. Did you know, by the way, it takes almost $10,000 just to be able to file your name on the ballot, to be able to put a candidate statement in both the counties that this district covers, which which is Alameda County and Santa Clara County. And on top of that, all of the fees that are associated with sending in your paperwork, with just basically getting your name in the door. And at a point in our in our time where um, this is something that prevents a lot of single mothers from running, it prevents teachers from running, it prevents a lot of ordinary Americans from running where, where we don't have $10,000 like that just to spend on a political run, just to get our name in the book. Look at how from the outset the system is set up that way. And what I believe that we need to do to truly overhaul the absolute corruption of our, of our career politicians is we need to have publicly financed elections. We need to undo a lot of these arbitrary fees that even to just go in front of an endorsement committee for the Democratic Party, having to pay $250 just to be considered for an endorsement. Imagine how many people that are from actual ordinary everyday people that could actually conceive of running if we did not complicate this process and from a monetary standpoint, make it inconceivable for them to run. That is the first step in what we're gonna have to do just from the pure rules standpoint to get ordinary people into office. Mm-hmm. Then after that, what we have to do is we have to elect people that are actually going to the communities, not just for the photo op, but they are actually interacting with the constituents they're serving to represent. In our campaign, we actually got on the ballot by rallying 1,000 people to sign our petition to get on the ballot, as opposed to just paying the filing fee and having our name show up. Because we believed in earning that vote in our community across all the five cities in our district. And this led to many people telling us, you know, this is the first time in 30 or 40 years that I've been living here that anybody running for office has even asked me for my vote. That's what's gonna force that level of accountability and frankly, a certain level of realism when we hear our politicians actually speak truth to what the constituents are saying about the most pressing issues that they have. Definitely, I mean, the way the system is set up, it it discourages the so-called non-elite to run. And it's a system for the wealthy. And if you have the money, you have the upper hand in being able to run in these elections. And so I love that you mentioned the importance of publicly financed elections. That's obviously part of your platform. But let's talk a little bit about other views you have, including healthcare, homelessness, housing. When it comes to housing, that is a huge issue in the state of California. How do you propose to combat home homelessness and unaffordable housing. I think when we talk about the issue of homelessness, so much of the conversation has surrounded measures that increase the supply of housing and affordable units and programs to ensure that we can shelter our homeless. But there has not been enough conversation surrounding funding and adequate services for mental health and helping the our homeless get access to job retraining, job opportunities. And what I have found 
sound that is missing from the community dialogue that you hear from folks on the ground. For example, um, in the city of Fremont, where they are planning a navigation center, is that much of the community was in fact very dismayed that while there was a lot of there was a lot of emphasis on funding being focused on shelter, there wasn't any sort of transparency from local city officials on what would be the health and and facility services for those that had been displaced. How are we going to ensure that we don't just shelter our homeless, we create a sense of community for them, we create a, a frankly a pathway for them to thrive. I have proposed that on a statewide level, we need to tackle this in a similar fashion that states like Utah tackled homelessness where they had an initiative that every for every displaced person, we will not just shelter, we will assign them social workers. We will ensure that there is some pathway towards rehabilitation as well as sheltering. And that is what we need to do on a statewide level. We need to not just ensure supply of units, we need to ensure that for every person, there is access to services that help them desperately get the, the help that they need. Yeah. And um, you know, with regards to affordable housing, the other aspect that I really don't see at all covered in the statewide dialogue surrounding this is that for a lot of young millennials like myself who are looking at owning their own home, uh, we need to increase the programs that are available for us to um, encourage home ownership with um, a lot of young professionals that are going to the workplace. Mm-hmm. I believe that the cost of college has a huge part in explaining why is it that statistically even across our whole country home ownership among folks in 20 to 30 is 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 very very low compared to the past and so comprehensively what we need to do to attack the issue of home of homelessness and affordable housing is also attacking the larger cost of living ensuring statewide our public colleges are not putting our students into debt ensuring statewide that you have access to affordable transit so that you are not having to have your entire livelihood just revolve around how you get to work every day financially. That's what we're gonna have to do to comprehensively tackle this issue. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you you touched on so many different things there. And I love that you mentioned uh, the program in Utah, because you're right, the program in Utah was a huge success. However, in in recent years, uh, the homeless population has actually skyrocketed further in Utah. And so look, there's, There's the solution for a problem, which is just provide housing. And I think that's so important. But there's also a huge underlying problem, which is affordability, cost of life. You touched on that a little bit. But I wanted to get your thoughts on wages. Because while California is actually pretty good when it comes to increasing wages for its workers, it still hasn't caught up with the price of housing. So how do you propose to tackle that? You know, you're absolutely right. And and um, in fact, in our own city uh, in Santa Clara, the city government decided that an entire street we're going to designate on El Camino Real to keep below market rate housing. It'll be fixed at uh, at units that are 300,000 to 400,000 per year. And when you resell the unit, it is fixed at that price. So you cannot uh, sell that and turn that and flip it for a profit per se. Mm-hmm. And that frankly gets to uh, the heart of the issue of why 
even though with wage growth, there, um, there are some groups that have been able to be mobile and to afford housing in California, there is a whole segment that has been left out of that prosperity. And so programs like what we did in the city of Santa Clara, if we did that statewide, ensuring, for example, that at least 20% of new units that are built in any given metropolitan city in California by mandate have to be housing that is affordable for, and you have to only restrict that to certain income groups. That could be a huge step forward, right? Mm -hmm. Now, with regards to what you asked about wage growth, I think that there is a larger question also, are we are we frankly granting equal access to every group for them to um, for them to have educational opportunity that will allow them to be mobile, that will allow them to progress? Um, frankly, we're not realistic in the discussion that even if we offer something like free community college, if you're already working two, three jobs just to stay afloat, how is it you're gonna conceive of going to night school to perhaps get further technical education to increase your skills and perhaps get a better job, right? Mm -hmm. um, so that is a very that is a very nuanced conversation we have to have with regards to wage growth. I personally would propose that we ensure every employer makes sure that there are subsidies that they provide if their employees want to get further career technical education, such that they're able to make that jump that without having to sacrifice um, uh, you know, obligations towards family financially, that they have um, adequate childcare services mm. that are uh, subsidized by our state to ensure that this is not placing an unfair burden on single mothers to have to choose between their career or their children. Uh, something which has historically held back economically disadvantaged groups, by the way. Um, so all of these initiatives, while they're small steps, they can do a lot in improving the situation of wage growth here in California. All right, well, Natasha Gupta, it seems like you have an incredible comprehensive platform and I encourage our viewers to check it out. Go to Gupta2020.com to learn more. Again, Gupta2020.com and you can also donate by going to Gupta2020.com slash donate. Or if you're interested in volunteering, you can go to Gupta2020.com slash join dash the dash fight. Thank you again, Natasha, it was a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you. All right, thank you so much for watching the conversation. The post game is next.